welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. We're going to pray for Lorian here in just a second, but I just want you to be thinking about her, praying for her. She has a great ministry there with the church there. There's a small church in that town that she has ministry with. She's having all kinds of personal ministry, too, with, with people in that area. So let's pray for her as we pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from our sister, Lorian, uh, serving as our missionary, Lord. We're just so thankful that in all the ways you've developed her for this, this place and this time and this thing, that you've gifted her for it. And uh, we just thank you for the joy we could see on her face, Lord, the, the fearlessness that you've given her. Pray that you would bless her, even with a heightened sense of your presence, even now as it's the end of Sunday for her. We pray, Lord, that she would be experiencing just a heightened sense of your presence and your love and your purpose for her there. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to give her fruitfulness in ministry, both in the church and, and with the lost that are there. And Lord, as we turn ourselves now to the book of James, uh, full of all kinds of wonderful commands that we find in there, we want, Lord, that to be a description of our life. As we read the book of James, we want the life that's described in this book. We want all the commands in this letter from James to delight our hearts and to be an accurate picture of the way of our life. Lord, we have fallen short in many ways, even today, even on the way here, even once we got here. But our hope, Lord, is in you, in the perfect cleansing power of Jesus. Our hope is in you, in the power of the Spirit to make us new in all these areas. And so we come here to your word, eager to hear from you and eager to leave different people. Lord, we call on you this morning to keep your new covenant promise to your people found in Ezekiel 36, where you promised, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from the idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, and I will give you a new spirit, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Father, we believe those promises. We believe your promise to cleanse us. We pray, Lord, that you would cleanse us. We believe in your promise to give us new hearts that pump with love and desire for you. And we pray that you do that. We pray that you do that here for, for believers who have come here beat down, bitter, despairing, hardened, apathetic, cynical. Those who have lost their first love. And we pray, Lord, that you would keep your new covenant promise to give them a new heart today. Lord, help people to leave here with a, with a profound sense of your love for them and, and new life coursing through their spirits. And Father, we believe in your promise to give the Spirit. And Lord, all of us who have come to you, we've received your Holy Spirit, but we know that we can be filled with your Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us this morning. And in Ezekiel 36, you say that you made all those promises not for our sake, but for the sake of your holy name, to vindicate the holiness of your name, that the nations will know that you are God when you vindicate your holiness before their eyes. And so, Lord, that sounds great to us. We would love for you this morning to be magnified, to be glorified, to vindicate your holy name. We pray you would, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. So, here we are, we're in James chapter 1, and uh, we're just in the beginning of a series, so if you're new here, this is a great time for you to come. We had a little intro last week that you can listen to, but um, this is a beautiful letter. It's a beautiful, bold letter, full of wonderful commands. 
And I know sometimes people look at a book like this and think, oh, so many commands. They're beautiful, though. Isn't that the way you want your life to look? That's what this is about. This is about coming, learning from the Lord, seeking his strength so that we could actually do all the things he's commanded. And, and I love that the first command in this is in verse 2, and it's a command to think differently. It's not actually a command to do something. It's a command to think differently. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. James here, guys, is aiming right for your heart because it turns out your ability to do any of the other commands that are in this letter actually hinge on your ability to think differently, to count your life differently. To Some translations say consider. Consider it all joy. Count it all joy. Your ability to count or consider or to think about your life and to think about the Lord differently is what all your ability to do all these other things hinges on. If you don't have a new mind, then you can't have a new way of life. And that word count or consider is a really powerful, common biblical word that describes what thinking by faith is like. If you look in Hebrews 11, you'll see over and over again the word consider mentioned over and over again. Same Greek word is here. Things like Sarah considered God faithful who had promised, right? Or Abraham, he offered up Isaac because he considered God able to raise him from the dead. Or Moses, it says that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter because he considered the reproaches of Christ better than the treasures of Egypt. And so this ability to consider or think differently about your life is the first step of discipleship because God doesn't just want actions. He wants us to do it from the heart and the heart needs to be changed. And so our perceptions, guys, are super important. And that's why it starts here. First command, count it, think differently. And one interesting thing about this, guys, is, is that your perception is your responsibility. That interesting? I know I'm supposed to start with like a story or something, okay, to warm you up, but I'm just going to start right there. Your perception of reality, your perception of what's good and right, and your perception of what's valuable and good is your responsibility. This is a command. It's a command for you to consider, to think differently, to count it differently. We are responsible before God with how we think, not just what we say and what we do. And I want to get really practical with you guys in this passage because what James is doing here is a matter of life and death. I want you to think as we think about trials, I want you to specifically think about your trial right now. And I'd like you to think of what is the trial or trials that you're facing right now and write them down. Because what I don't want to do is, you know, we do this lovely thing about trials and you never apply it to your trial. I was talking to a brother this week, and he was saying, you know what, I, I never really even used the word trial for my hardships. And I was like, you know what, I think that's common. And we were talking about how Christians in general don't use the word trial or testing for their hardships anymore. It's almost kind of an old way of talking. But the problem with that is, is that we've removed God from our hardships when we don't call it a trial or a test. We no longer see it as in, in the realm of something God's doing. It's just something happening to us. And so you need to think of the difficult things that are happening to you right now and label them trials and write them down. Please write them down. It's super important that you really see this because I don't want you to just kind of think about trials theoretically or for other people, but to think about it for yourself. What counts as a trial? Take a look at verse 2. What does it say? Trials of what? Various kinds, okay? So anything internal, external, it could be something physical that you're dealing with. It could be something emotional that you're dealing with. It could be a relational problem that you're dealing with. It could be a spiritual problem that you're dealing with. It could be a combination of those, which they often are. Jesus, uh, James is saying here that, that it's the testing of your faith. A trial is the testing of your faith. So a hardship, a, a trial is a hardship that tests your trust or faith in God's goodness, wisdom, or control. Okay? 
So a trial is any hardship that you're dealing with right now that is testing your trust, your faith in God's goodness, wisdom, or control in your life. Okay? So it's very broad. So I want you to write that down. This trial that you're going through, guys, is a test. You're being tested. Okay? Um, I, I love this, this quote by Dallas Willard. He said this, This will be a test of your joyful confidence in God. That's what's happening right now. As you're suffering, this is a test of your joyful confidence in God. A test that really shows where your faith is at. Do I really, really trust God's goodness and wisdom and control in my life? I find that out when I'm tested, right? I find that out when I go through a trial and at no other time. So write down your trial right now. And what James is saying is that that thing you wrote down, he's saying that we must count it all joy. And you guys might have written down some really horrendous things just now, okay? And you might think like, I can't do that. I can't count that all joy or nothing but joy, right? But you can. You can. Actually, the Spirit gives us the ability to do this. And he's going to help us do that with the rest of this text. The rest of this text, he didn't just say that and move on. He's actually going to help us to count whatever that trial is as joy. And he's going to do that in the next few verses. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let has steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. How can we count it all joy when we face trials? And he says, well, you can do it because you know something. And the thing that you know from this text is you know that your trials are not meaningless, random, um, capricious acts from God, but they're purposeful, right? He's saying your trials are purposeful. You know that God has given you trials for his glory and for your ultimate good. That he actually wants to give you something through this trial. So you're not supposed to look at the trial and say, oh, that's great. I love this, you know? No. What he's asking us to do is not to look at the trial, but to look through the trial to what God is going to give us through the trial. That's what faith allows us to do. It allows us not just to see the trial, but to see what God's doing through it. And I am going to attempt a diagram. Because there's really a sequence here. There's a sequence of thought, which I don't want you to miss. He's actually making an argument here, and he's saying that your trials or your testing, and I know you can't see that in the back, but that's what it says, produces what? Steadfastness or endurance or patience is another word for it. It produces this. He wants us to see that, and then he wants us to see that there's a full effect. He says that it would have a full effect, that it would go all the way to completion, and that he would give us, he would make us perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So these are, these are gifts that God gives in our trials, or better yet, through our trials, right? He's giving us something through it. So we don't want to just see the trial. We want to see through it. What is he giving us? And one of the first things he talks about here is that we be perfect, complete, lacking nothing, right? That's the sequence of thought here. So the first gift that God gives us through trials is that we be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, that we be steadfast. Now, um, what, what is this? Well, perfect, he doesn't mean sinless. What does he mean? He means substantial Christ-likeness. Okay, that we would, through a trial, become steadfast, and then we would get substantial Christ-likeness through that. And let me just label these. So this is like verse 2, 
verse 3, verse 4, right? It's all there. And um, what's steadfastness? Steadfastness is endurance, patience. It literally means the ability to remain under, okay? It's the ability to carry a heavy load for a long period of time. Any of you guys carrying a heavy load for a long period of time? That's what steadfastness is. The Lord makes, uh, uses trials to make us actually better people, there was a book that came out a while back called Anti-Fragile. It's not a Christian book, but it's a book called Anti-Fragile, and it's by uh, Nassim Taleb, and he, he has this idea of anti-fragile. So anti-fragile is this. Fragile is, you know, we know what fragile is, a glass vase or something like that. You drop it, it breaks, right? Um, durable or resilient is something you can throw on the ground all day and it doesn't change it. Big rock or something like that. Boom, boom, boom. Durable. Anti-fragile gets better when you beat it up, okay? It actually gets stronger when you beat it up. The Lord is actually making us anti-fragile. He actually doesn't just, we're not fragile in the Lord. We're not just durable. But when we have trials, we actually get better. Examples of that in the human body would be muscles. The way muscles get bigger and stuff like that is by trauma, by ripping, by tearing, by rebuilding, right? You get stronger through that. You're not fragile. You're not just durable. You actually get stronger as you lift weights, right? Or the immune system. Immune system, as long as it doesn't kill you, um, you actually get antibodies to it. You become stronger, whether through a vaccine or natural infection. You, you get stronger. You're better off than you were before. In The Princess Bride, Wesley took Iocane powder for years, small doses, small doses, a little more, a little bit of time, so that he would not die from Iocane powder. That's anti-fragile. The Lord is making us anti-fragile. The Lord uses our trials to make us stronger and better and more steadfast. Okay, And I think we get into a mindset that any bad thing that comes into our life, that we're fragile, that we can't do it, that we can't, you know, this can't be good, this will only destroy us. But guys, in the Lord, you're not fragile. You're anti-fragile. You're not even durable. You're anti-fragile. The Lord is actually making you more steadfast. He's also making you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What does that mean? Well, like I said, it's not sinlessness, because James is real clear later. We all stumble in many ways. We all sin. But what it is is substantial Christ-likeness. Okay, and if, if we were to make a graph and like here's sinlessness and here's you, there's a ton of room here, right, for us to become more like Christ and be in no danger of being perfect, right? And so we can be more like Christ through our trials that he actually makes us more and more like Jesus. Substantial Christ-likeness. Other translations say maturity, right, that we become more and more like Christ. And that's God's plan for us in this life. So this is a benefit that we get through trials in this life is we become more and more like Christ. And your trials do this, right? It also makes you, he says, lacking nothing. Another translation is equipped, that you would have the ability to really act as God's agent in this world. And what makes you ready for that are the trials. The trials specifically equip you. A lot of times we talk about equipping and we mean like that you would have theological knowledge or you know, know how to preach a sermon or whatever. The best thing that equips you are trials. The suffering that you have makes you ready. And what does he say about this? He says, James says, you know this, right? You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And you do know this. You do know that trials make you more like Christ. Who do you go to when you have a struggle of some kind and, and you need advice or you need prayer or whatever? Do you go to the person that's been untested? Or do you go to that saint that's like all beat up? You know, all beat up and scarred from following Jesus. That's the person you go to. That's the person that's, that's more equipped. He says, he says, you know this, and you do know this. You, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and Christ-likeness. Because let me ask you this. 
When have you ever grown without pain? In Jesus. When have you ever grown without pain? When have you ever grown without a trial that you thought was going to kill you? When have you ever grown without testing? Never, right? You might think, well, I grow when I read the Bible. You do grow when you read the Bible once that gets tested, right? Because the reading of Scripture and the knowing of Scripture is a knowing of God that is necessary to endure the test, but until it's tested, it's not real. It's knowledge. And then what? And then the beatings come, you know? The trials come. And that's where we really know how much we know the Lord. We need the Scripture to to have knowledge of Him, and then we need that knowledge tested. You need to be tested. Say, I don't want to be tested. You need it. Martin Luther said this. He said, there's three ingredients to knowing God, and they're found in Psalm 119. He said they are prayer, meditation, and trial. And you're like, I think I want to just do the prayer and meditation. Is that possible? Could I go to like a, a retreat somewhere and do some prayer and meditation and grow? I, I think you could know some things from that, but you know what's going to have to happen? You've got to come home and be tested, right? It's got to be the trial. Let me ask you this, guys. Will your trials and testing automatically produce you being perfect and complete, lacking nothing? Like, is this automatic? Does it always work like that? No, it doesn't, right? Take a look at verse 4. He says, let it have its full effect. Let it have its full effect. That's interesting, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What's he saying? There is a, it implies there is a way that you could not let your trials have their full effect. You could waste them. You could waste your trial. You could be headed on this path that God intends to make you perfect and complete, lacking nothing, and do this. Like, I'm out of here. Right? And we do that, we waste our trials when we don't let it have its full effect, right? We waste it. And we waste it with things like when we turn to bitterness, right? Or um, despair. Or um, self indulgent sin. Right? We, we waste our trial. And, and that happens. And I think we've all been there where we haven't actually had the full benefit of our trial because we've wasted it. Guys, if you're in a trial right now, you are being tested. Your trust in God's goodness and wisdom and control is being tested. And you need to ask yourself as you're going through it, what are the test results? Right? What are the test results? What's coming out? Is what's coming out faith and trust in him? Or am I turning to bitterness and despair and and self-indulgent sin? Trials, guys, are times of temptation. Times of temptation to bitterness. I mean, you can become bitter at God, right? You can become bitter at others, in your family, friends, things like that. You can become bitter at your enemies. You can become bitter at your church family. That happens a lot, actually. People go through a trial. All of a sudden, they don't really feel attached to the church anymore. They're bitter. They're bitter people. You know, they're in pain, right? I'm a veterinarian. When animals are in pain and you try to help them, what do they do? They bite. Okay? They bite you. Right? That happens. That happens here. So beware of bitterness, guys. Beware of bitterness. Because the same sun, guys, that beats down on a tree and produces fruit is the same sun that hardens the ground until it's lifeless and impervious. Which are you? Beware of bitterness, guys. Be very beware of it. A bitter root that springs up. Um, We don't want to waste our trials, guys. Because we're going to go through trials no matter what, aren't we? We are. We're going to go through trials no matter what, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. We want to be made substantially more Christ-like. 
Um, everybody's going to go through suffering. Life is suffering. Life is loss for everyone. And we want it, though, to have God's full intended effect. Um, another thing we can dip into is, is self-indulgence. You know, you think about, like, when you're in pain, you want to relieve that pain, you want to mitigate that pain, and so we end up doing it through, like, alcohol or pills or sexual immorality or being a workaholic or pornography or shopping or food or screen time or sleep or entertainment. You thought I was just going to mention, like, alcohol and some of these other things. Look at your life and see, when I'm in pain, how do I medicate myself? Because we all medicate ourselves somehow. How are you medicating yourself? Self-indulgent sin, bitterness, and despair are the things that we need to steer clear of. And so he talks in here, he gives us actually ways to steer clear of these. How do we, if we've kind of taken on, gone down this bad off-ramp, right, to bitterness and despair and self-indulgence, how do we get back to here? You know, how do we get back to the place where we're letting that trial have its full effect that we'd be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And he actually tells us. In verses 5 through 11, he tells us exactly what we need in this time of trial or difficulty. The two things are wisdom from God and um, eternal perspective. Those are the two things we need. And we're going to see those in verses 5 through 11. Take a look at the wisdom part. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, I don't think there's any mistake that it's right after the trial part. You need wisdom, right? If you're in a trial right now, you need wisdom. Trials are a time of confusion, temptation, spiritual danger, and you cannot trust your perceptions. You can't trust your perceptions. You need wisdom, right? You need to ask God for wisdom. You can't trust your perceptions. You know, our culture says things like, you know what? Trust your heart. Trust your heart. You know down deep inside the right thing to do. You just need to trust yourself. Guys ever posted a meme like that on social media? Trust your heart. What does the Bible say about trusting your heart? There we go, Jeremiah, right? Deceitfully wicked, who can know it? Let's not go there. God says this, ask me for wisdom. Ask me for wisdom. How have you guys done using your own wisdom in trials? How's it gone for you? Right? It's gone terribly, right? I love the quote from uh, Gandalf. He says this. He says, Too long have you sat in shadows and trusted to twisted tales and crooked promptings. That's what it's like to trust your heart. It, it, it sounds like trusting to twisted tales and crooked promptings. If you're in a trial right now, you have to stop and you have to ask God for wisdom. Look at verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let, not him, ask in, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. You need to ask God for wisdom without doubting. Now, I know this verse has been taken out of context and used for all kinds of ridiculous things. This verse has a context. It's not, hey, you know, you want to make a million dollars? Ask without doubting, you'll have it. Or you want to be healed from this? Ask without doubting, and you'll have it. It's almost like this thing. If you could do this verse, you could have anything you want. What's the context? Wisdom. He says, if you'll ask for wisdom without doubting, he will give it. It's very clear that that's the context. It's wisdom. Does it apply to other things? Maybe. But right now, it's about wisdom. And he says, when we ask for wisdom, we should believe that he really gives wisdom. That we shouldn't pray with 
uh, doubt or being tossed back and forth, double-minded. The word means double-souled, you know, that you have two ways of thinking. You're asking for wisdom, but you're really thinking he won't give it to you. And, and I know, guys, like many of us deal with severe doubt. I deal with doubt, severe doubt. I have before. I still do sometimes, perhaps more than most of you. The Bible is actually very warm to doubters. It's really interesting. All the way throughout the Psalms, all the way throughout the, the New Testament, Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. Jude was actually James's brother, by the way, the other brother of Jesus, one of his other brothers. And James does that. He actually has mercy on doubters here by, by calling it out for what it is. It's double-mindedness. And then he says, you have no good reason to doubt that God would give you wisdom if you ask for it. I mean, God actually asks us to ask him for wisdom. If he asks us to ask him for wisdom, he's going to give us the wisdom when we ask for it, right? It's not like, hey, you want, want wisdom? Ask me for wisdom. I want to give it to you. And it's like, nope, psych, no. He is going to give you wisdom. He asks you to ask him. And he says he gives it generously. He's got plenty of it. Like, it's not no lack of wisdom. It doesn't deplete him at all to give it to you. And so we have no reason, guys, to doubt that God will give us wisdom. This passage is not impossible to believe that he would give this. It, 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 he answers this request 100% of the time. This is his will for you. And so if you're in a trial right now, you're in a time of great confusion and temptation and spiritual danger. You need wisdom. You can't trust in your own mind anymore. You have to go to him for wisdom. You need to ask for it right now, and he will give it to you. Because what we really need in this wisdom is we need to be able to see through the trial to what God's doing in it, instead of just looking at the trial itself. And so we need wisdom. We also need an eternal perspective. We need an eternal perspective. When we're suffering, we're very now-oriented, or immediate future-oriented. We're not thinking about 3,000 years from now or 3 billion years from now, which is the way we should be thinking. We're thinking right in front of us or the next few years from now. We need an eternal perspective because, guys, trials are threatening you with all kinds of losses. They're actually taking substantial things from you. Health, relationships, Financial security, your strength, your usefulness, what you always thought was your purpose for living. The trials take that from us. We need an eternal perspective. And so that's what he does in verse 9. Check it out. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his humiliation, and the rich, uh, sorry, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass that passes away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat. We know about that here. And withers the grass, and its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man in the midst of all his pursuits. James is saying here that both rich believers and poor believers have something to boast about. And it's kind of interesting. So the poor believer, the one that's in a real bad trial, and many things being taken from them, can boast in their exaltation. The fact that in Christ they have everything. Everything's theirs. That God's going God's to come through for them in the resurrection, make all things new. He's going to restore everything that's lost. The poor can boast in that. What do the rich boast in? The rich believers, they boast in that they're going to lose everything. I love that. Don't you love that? That the rich believer is calling them to say like, look me over here. See all the stuff I have? I'm losing it all. I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose my mind. I'm going to lose my health. I'm going to lose everything I have. Right? It's kind of a funny word to use here to, to boast about that. But that's an eternal perspective, guys. The eternal perspective is, is that this is a quick life, and it's a process of losing everything you have. Okay? Isn't this fun? Aren't you glad you came to church? Yeah. Like, this is real, though, right? What did Job say? Job said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? 
And those of you who are younger, you're kind of on the early part of the curve, right, of your life, and you're just like acquiring. Acquire, 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 acquire. But what's coming is this, okay? So this is your birth. This is your death. You leave the same way you came. The crazy thing is, is that we freak out in here. Oh, my gosh, I'm losing everything. You are. Oh, my gosh, my health, I'm going to lose. Yes. Oh, I'm going to die. You are. You're losing everything. Isn't that freeing in some way? Came in naked, leaving naked, right? And then there's this massive reversal here at the resurrection where all things are made new. And this is so practical, guys. We really need to have an eternal perspective because the things we're holding on to, we can't keep. And the things that we're holding on to are all going to be ours in the resurrection in the new world. Like God is going to restore all things. And living with an eternal perspective, guys, is a mental practice. You say, well, I don't do that. You're not practicing it. You have to actually practice it. Like, well, my brain doesn't work that way. No one's brain works that way, okay? My brain doesn't work that way either. It actually takes time. We actually have to practice counting it all joy when we meet various trials. This, is, this has to start in the way that we think. And guys, this is so practical because trials tempt us to make us think that we're alone, right? That we're the alone righteous sufferer. You know, that we're facing trials and we look around and nobody else is. And that comparison can fuel bitterness. It's one of the reasons we get bitter towards other people. Everybody's like... Life's great. You know, you look on social media, which is toxic, and you should stop using it. But um, we look at social media, and we see everybody having this great life and stuff like that, and we compare, and we get bitter towards people, right? This is a thing that we do, right? But the reality, guys, the reality is everybody else is on the same ride to nothing. (laughs) And different people's curves look different, but they're all doing the same thing. We're either Job right before the trial or we're Job in the trial, or we're Job right after the trial about to get another one. But that's, that's, we're all in the same boat. And that's why it says, you know, that the poor should boast in their exaltation, and the rich should boast in their humiliation. We need an eternal perspective. Guys, trials also tempt us to think that we're losing our only shot at happiness. Don't they? I'm losing my only shot at happiness. You know, a you know, person might say, well, you know, I'm in a marriage that is, you know, wrecking me, and I'm losing my only shot at a happy life. Not true right? Or your career didn't go the way it went, and you know, I'm, I lost my only shot at happiness. Not the case, guys. The reality is, is that all these things we're losing are mere shadows of coming eternal joy, right? You're not losing your only shot at happiness, not your best shot at happiness. You don't live your best life now, best life coming, right? Resurrection, new earth, we can't beat up on that guy enough, you know? We just do it every, we do it every service. Um, boast in your exaltation, If we get this eternal perspective, guys, then we're going to be ready to lose anything in order to glorify God. And I know this is hard. I mean, even when I'm prepping this thing, I'm thinking like, this is a dangerous message. You know, you preach like this, things happen. Hey, we have to be ready for this. One of the most important things we can do as a church is prepare you to suffer well. We're not playing games here, guys. I mean, if we just happy clappy every time, and then when you hit a trial and you are not at all prepared for it, we failed you. And the Bible, guys, is so rich in helping us to have this perspective on life, okay? And, and I want you to consider two Christians really quickly that counted it all joy when they faced various trials. First one I want you to think about is Jim Elliott. So in the 50s, he's a 28-year-old husband. He's a new husband, new father. Um, they go to be missionaries in Ecuador. They know it's risky. They know it could kill him. It did kill him. They went there and kind of almost immediately once he made contact with the tribe, they killed him. And in his journal, he wrote these famous words. He is no fool who gives 
what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's an eternal perspective. That's this chart, right? That's like, I know I can't keep any of this, so I'm happy to give all of this to Christ and endure any kind of suffering, any kind of loss for the sake of knowing, having Christ be known in the world, for glorifying Christ in the world, because I don't keep any of this anyway. I have things I cannot lose, right? We have to think this way about life or we will constantly be just spiritually stunted, tiny little scared people of everything that comes, just worrying about everything that's about to happen to us and take everything away. And it is. It is. We need to deal with it. But it's not just inevitable, guys. I don't want us to just go away from the Stoics could do that. They could go like, oh, suffering's inevitable. We need to embrace it. It's rewarded, though, guys. God is going to reward your steadfastness through this. There's something better coming. The Stoics didn't have the resurrection and the new earth and and a God who was there to bless them through it. There's an eternal perspective. So I want to ask you this morning, will you give all that you cannot keep anyway to make Christ known? Second person I want you to think about, more contemporary, is David Paulson. So he's a biblical counselor and author, wrote a lot of great books. All of his books are great. He died this last summer of pancreatic cancer. And when he first got his diagnosis, he reacted the same way. Most of us would. I think all of us would. Why me? Why this? Why now? Right? Isn't that how you'd react? I mean, pancreatic cancer, very quick, terrible thing. But I love where he landed because this guy had an eternal perspective. This was the time, like, so much knowledge in that guy, such a blessing. You read his books. And then what? And then it got tested. And the guy passed the test. He passed the test. He passed away this summer. And he wrote in one of his final books, he said this. He said, at first I thought, why me, why this, why now? And then he said this. You see, he came to a place where he could say, why not me? Why not me? Why not this? Why not now? If in some way my life might serve as a three-watt nightlight in a very dark world, why not me? If my suffering shows forth the Savior of the world, why not me? If I have the privilege of filling up the sufferings of Christ, why not me? If he sanctifies me in my deepest distress, if I fear no evil, if he bears me in his arms, if my weakness demonstrates the power of God to save from all that is wrong, why not me? If my honest struggle shows other strugglers how to land on their feet, and if my life becomes a source of hope for others, why not me? That's where we want to be, guys. That's what James is talking about here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. In your current trial, will you joyfully surrender all those things you can't keep for an opportunity to display the beauty and the value of Jesus to the world and gain what you can't lose. James doesn't play games. This is the real situation we're in. Um, 2 Corinthians, I love 2 Corinthians 4, 16. If I was a tattooing type and wouldn't die having a tattoo, this would be it. It's a long passage though. 2 Corinthians four sixteen says this. So we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, and keep in mind Paul's life, beatings, shipwrecked, people stoning him to death, light ones like that. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Do you even know what that is? Preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And guys, that points us to the, the second gift that, that, um, that the Lord wants to give us through our trials because there's actually um, more than one here. And we'll end on this one. There's one here. 
and it's in verse 12. Take a look at it. Because the first thing he's given us through our trials is something we can experience in this life. Substantial Christ-likeness. Steadfastness, perfect, complete, lacking nothing. That's something that he's giving us in this life. Not sinlessness, but substantial Christ-likeness. The second thing he's going to give us is in the world to come. Take a look at it. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so this is a future one, right? Crown of life. Crown of life. Right? And he probably doesn't have in mind here like the kind of heavy, kingly metal crown. He probably has in mind the, the laurel wreath type crown that marathon runners got. 1 Corinthians 9 says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And then listen to this. Remember this from this morning. So run that you may obtain it. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do so to receive a perishable wreath, a little crown of life. But, when, but we, an imperishable one. God promises, guys, rewards to those who love him and love him enough to remain steadfast and to run hard for him in trials. Like, he rewards that. You know, count it all joy because God wants to reward your steadfastness. He wants to reward you in the world to come for remaining steadfast. Now, that doesn't mean that you, like, earn your salvation through steadfastness. Jesus earns our salvation. But on top of our salvation, in the world to come, he's got all kinds of additional rewards he wants to give to you if you remain steadfast. Isn't that amazing? That he would earn your way there, and then he would want to reward you for your steadfastness here in the world to come. And you might say things like, and I've heard people say this, and I've said it, I don't really need a reward, I'm just happy to be there. I don't need a reward, I'm just happy, happy to be saved. I think, have you ever thought that before? Probably the tone I used. Now you don't want to admit it, that's okay. I've said it before. I, you know, it sounds very humble. I don't need any reward, I'm just happy to be saved, right? But listen to this, that's not honest, you all seek rewards. You just don't seek them from God. We all seek affirmation and appreciation and acknowledgement. There's not one of us that doesn't like that, right? But we seek it from people, not from God, right? We've sold out. We aim too low. We sold out cheap, guys. What we should be seeking is the reward that comes from God. Jesus said that, right? He goes, how can you believe when you seek honor from humans when you should seek the honor that only comes from God? Guys, imagine, imagine for a moment what it'll feel like to hear that your steadfastness in the trial you're in right now, to hear that that pleased the Lord. Imagine hearing that from his own lips in the world to come. Imagine him talking to you specifically and telling you how much it pleased him the way you endured the trial of 2019. Imagine how that feels. This is the God who spoke you into being, now speaking his well done, good servant. You've been faithful. How's that going to feel? It's going to feel amazing, guys. Your trial right now gets you that. That's a gift of your trial. Your trial, as you remain steadfast in it, gets you that affirmation from the Lord. Crown of life. Count it all joy. Guys, that moment will be all joy. And that's why you can count your trial now as being all joy. I just want to ask you, are you living to hear that? Is that in your motivation structure? Think about each day. Are you living to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? 
Does the thought of it change your response to your trial? You go like, okay, this is really awful. I want out of this. I'm going to bail. And then you go, no, 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 no. I can't wait to hear, good and faithful servant. I'm staying on this track. I'm going to remain steadfast. Does that enter your motivational structure? It should. That's what he's talking about here. Does the thought of his pleasure keep you going? Like, you know what? I'm going to keep going because I, I know this makes God so happy. He's so pleased. Guys, it, God really sees that as your love for him. He says the crown of life which God promises to those who love him. And so when we remain steadfast in our trials, he takes that as love to him. And, and he loves that. He loves that we love him enough to keep running hard in a trial. I want, to just, I want you guys to think about Think about the final day. Think about the time when you come before the Lord, and, and not for judgment because if you're a believer, not for judgment because you're in Christ, but to hear the outcome of your life, the assessment of your life by God, right? Do you want to arrive there without any scars of faithfulness to him? Do you want to show up with no scars? Do you want to show up with no stories of how you just like kept walking through that field of rose bushes as your soul was shredded, kept following the Lord through the briar, through the, the, the quicksand, through just ravenous wolves. I mean, just marching through this suffering that's just tearing you up. Do you want to show up there without scars? Do you want to show up there without a story of how God's grace triumphed in your life, guys? This is, some, this is the only time we have in our whole existence, we'll, we'll go on forever, that we can actually prepare for ourselves an eternal weight of glory. Like, what do you want to bring to the Lord? You want to be steadfast. And we love him, guys, because he first loved us. Right? That's what keeps us going, is that he loves us. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of the way that God loves us, right? In the Lord's Supper, we meet God as a suffering Savior. This is unique to Christianity. In the Lord's Supper, we meet God as a suffering Savior. And I'll stand on that. You guys come up with another major religion where God came down and suffered in your place and was pierced, and I'll take it back. But um, this, we meet with a suffering Savior, a, a God who came, became a man and was tested and tried in ways that we haven't even been. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. That Jesus was tested to prove that he was the perfect substitute for us. He was tested so that he could have that spotless life that would be stained with our sin and he would bear our judgment on the cross. A spotless life, guys, that is represented by this bread. When you, if you're a believer in Christ, when you take communion, come on up here. Take the bread. It's gluten-free. You don't need to worry about that. And think about that spotless life, that perfect life that he had that was crushed on the cross for you. And as you take the cup, it represents his blood. And it, it reminds us of the perfect record. He was testing always to be that perfect life to cover over all of our sin and to give us his perfect record. Because, guys, we're not saved by our own steadfastness. We're saved by his steadfastness, right? Our steadfastness gets rewarded. His steadfastness gives us salvation. We aren't saved by our steadfastness. We're saved by Jesus' steadfastness. We are saved by Jesus' steadfast love. Jesus' steadfast love for you, which was shown through nail-pierced limbs and a bloody wooden cross. Jesus' steadfast love, which quite literally went through hell and back for you. 
And when he could have stopped, when he could have backed down, when he could have taken it off and run, he didn't. He pursued it for the glory of God and for your joy. Have you turned from your sin? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in that Jesus? Ask yourself that. Because you wouldn't want to come up here and take this unless you actually are trusting in Jesus for your salvation. You've actually turned from your sin and trusted in him. And if you haven't done that, you say, well, you know what, I'll do that when I'm older, I'll do that later, I'll do that when I've had whatever I want to have first. You really got to ask yourself why. You know, when you hear that God loves you like that, you have to ask yourself why. Why would you resist that God, right? That shows something deeply wrong in us when we do that, right? So trust in him. You can have him today. Just call out to him. Let's pray. Before we take the Lord's Supper, guys, I want to lead you guys in prayer. And so first, I just have you come before the Lord and name your trial to him. Whatever trial or trials are occurring, if you just tell him right now what they are. And then ask the Lord to keep you steadfast so that it would have its full effect in your life. You don't want to waste it. Lord, tell me you don't want to waste it. Tell him that you want to remain steadfast. Tell him that you want him to have his full and intended effect in it. And now, confess to the Lord the ways that you've reacted sinfully in your trial. As we were looking at that chart and seeing that arrow just diverting from the path. Confess to him in the ways you've, you've succumbed to bitterness, to despair, to self-indulgence. Ask him for wisdom. Ask him for wisdom, not doubting. This is a prayer he answers 100% of the time, so ask him for wisdom. Ask him for an eternal perspective. Ask him to help you to joyfully give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Father, we offer our whole lives to you. Whatever may come, Lord, we are all in. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Unexpectedly, they come upon us, and they come upon us with a vengeance. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to count them with all joy. Lord, we pray that you would help us to honestly pray, why not us? Why not this? Why not now? If in some way our faith might serve as a three-watt nightlight in a very dark world, why not us? If our suffering would show forth the beauty and the glory of our Savior Jesus forever in the world to come, why not us? If this affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, why not us? Lord, help us to freely surrender our whole futures, our whole present to you. We love you. We love you because you first loved us. And Jesus, now as we take the bread and the cup, which reminds us of your body and blood, we pray that we would feel your steadfast love for us. If the cross didn't make you give up on us, nothing will. Your love is relentless. We're thankful for it. It's our only hope. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. 
If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covegraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.